the world is more or less back on its feet. I said more or less. And while many economies across the globe are still in recovery mode, the next 12 months are a crucial time to be looking beyond the pandemic. To help us get a more macro view on things, for today's episode of The Chiefs, we turn to economist and fellow Canadian Mark Carney. From steering the Bank of Canada out of the worst of 2008's financial crisis to being appointed the youngest and first non-Briton to govern the Bank of England when it comes to finance, Mark Carney is known for his value-driven smart thinking. That's perhaps why, after leaving the Bank of England in 2020, Carney was appointed as the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance and took up a role leading impact investment at asset management firm Brookfield, one of the world's largest investors in real estate. Joining me today from a rather sleepy Ottawa, we tackle everything from the challenge of maintaining equal growth across borders to how to move the sustainability agenda beyond rhetoric. From Monocle's headquarters here in Zurich, I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Mark, very good to speak to it. At long, long last, there was many promised interviews. The Monocle listeners have been waiting over the years, but here we are. I'm in Zurich. You're in Ottawa. There was a place called London, uh, once upon a time in between, which, which I guess brings me to the first question. What's life like on the other side of the Atlantic? Here we are one year plus since you, uh, almost a year plus since you departed UK shores. But we knew when you left uh, the UK that there was, of course, the UN gig, and it would be good to talk about that. But also you've landed at Brookfield as well. And of course, a lot of people know the Brookfield name. But you know, if, if I'm sitting in Hong Kong or even in London, I may not uh, know what Brookfield does day in and day out. I'm spending half my time on the UN gig. And as you say, we'll talk about that in a bit, but I'm doing a few other things and Brookfield being the most prominent and important. Brookfield's one of the largest real estate owners in the world and owners and operators in the world and focuses on highest quality real estate in major cities, major capitals around the world. It basically has a a guiding philosophy of owning what it calls the backbone of the global economy. So that means real estate. It means infrastructure. And it very importantly means renewable power. It's one of the largest private owners of renewable power in the world. For example, it has 20 gigawatts of mixture of hydro, solar, wind, and other assets. So what does that mean? It means it can power the city of London and then some, and it has the same again in development. And the main reason why I came to join Brookfield, apart from it being an outstanding organization, is that they wanted to extend that approach, that approach on renewables towards decarbonization and set up an explicit strategy to help companies get to net zero. So to basically go to where the emissions are, uh, invest in companies so that they can get their emissions down. So I'm working with others and setting up a very large fund, a $7.5 billion fund in order to do just that. Mark, you're speaking to us at a time where it's very clear that this pandemic is not over until it's over. We've seen some very over-anxious governments around the world over the last few weeks, over the last few months, uh, of course, you know, almost not proclaiming that it's over, but of course, talking about how they've how well they've done on a number of fronts. And then bang, you have another uh, you know, incidence of a community case. And, and it's just, it, it's not finished. However, at the same time, we see that, of course, flight bookings are up. Uh, if you talk to hotel owners, they, they're looking at a very good summer, a summer with, with the world starting to travel again, if you look towards August and September. But from Mark Carney's point of view, how does the next, should we look at the next 36 months, the next, the next five years? How does, how does it look for you? For all of us, we hope that uh, we're going to have 
this steady normalization. It's not going to happen overnight, but gradually the world opens up. And absolutely, we have to keep with this point that it has to be over everywhere. And we have to be committed to making sure it's over everywhere. So part of what I'm doing in terms of the UN is, uh, or the bulk of what I'm doing relates to uh, COP26 and climate, but also helping out informally on efforts with uh, global vaccination and moving forward there. So I expect that the next 36 months, five years, includes a continued work volunteering for the UN, other efforts to help, quote, build a better world. As well, I'm going to be doing the Brookfield work. This is a long-term investment strategy, and we're very excited about it. We've got tremendous traction, not just in terms of getting the funds together and Brookfield's putting in $2 billion of their own money, but really getting out there with companies and helping to solve uh, their problems as part of solving the world's biggest problem. But as well, I'm working, I'm on the board of a company called Stripe, which is one of the most exciting financial technology companies. I'm not doing them justice and calling them just that in the world and uh, run by two brilliant. Irish, young Irishmen. And then a bit of philanthropic work as well. I'm just joining the board of the Harvard Overseers and doing some uh, charity work here in Canada. So I'm going to try to keep busy, Tyler. It sounds it. Now, okay, we've taken care of the Mark Carney part, but if you, let's say, maybe go back to a position that you were in two years ago, uh, if we would have been in the middle of all of this, where you would have had, of course, not just the British press, the international press, and I think the international press still wants to know your view on how you see things rolling. Of course, we've seen very negative pictures. We almost see also just roller coaster predictions, you know, by the day they change. And then a lot of surprise. I mean, how quickly some economies are bouncing back. Of course, you are in the thick of it in many ways. Maybe if you look south of the border at the US, and I continue just to hear very positive things, at least when we look at consumer sentiment and what all of that means. Can you give us, Mark Carney, a macro view of where we are and, and what this horizon looks like right now? It's pretty positive, to be honest. Uh, If you look at any economy that has reopened or is reopening, virtually without exception, the economy has performed better, at least as well, if not better than expected. I mean, let's take the US. The US uh, economy is very, very strong right now. We're going to have another strong quarter. Consumption is probably growing 14% or so on an annualized basis. The savings rate is still twice historic averages. So there's still a lot of pent up savings. Fiscal policy, the uh, monetary policy still providing stimulus going in. Companies are starting to spend again. In fact, the biggest challenge that the US economy is having right now is so-called supply bottlenecks. In other words, things have moved from very slow to very fast so quickly that there's shortages of, for example, famously shortages of uh, computer chips, which are slowing some uh, auto production as one example. There's shortages of labor in various areas, because people have been out of work or at home or are still candidly uh, receiving uh, uh, some income support. So they're waiting, planning on enjoying their summer before they get back to work. So we see that in the US, which is really, uh, along with China, at the forefront of the global recovery. We're seeing much better signs in Europe. Obviously, things are moving a bit slower because of the pace of the health situation there, the pace of recovery of that. But even there, the pickup is evident. The UK is well strong. Canada, despite us being in lockdown mode, and this is an interesting point, we're still largely locked down, but the economy has adapted so much and the way people spend and the way businesses are operating, that uh, this economy is growing quite strongly as well. And it will only pick up as we properly open up. So in the advanced economies, the picture is very strong. Now, I think the concern, the principal concern one has is that, as you said a moment ago, Tyler, the corona 
crisis isn't over anywhere until it's over everywhere. And in a number of emerging economies, and certainly in the developing world, there's much less progress on the disease. And there is less momentum as a consequence of that. And so we could have a, a growing bifurcation in terms of the strength globally. And that's one of the things I think policymakers at all levels have to be working on to, to close that gap. When you talk about policymakers, and if you look at those in, in charge of economic policy, are you encouraged by maybe some of your former peers? And I'm thinking both, Mark, in the private and in the public sector. When you think about people who have to be taking a macro view over the next 24 months, what they have to be doing on a regional level as much as a as a global level, do you think that there are the foot soldiers and enough uh, majors and generals in, in place? Or do you also, yeah, when you pinball around the world and, of course, look at maybe bleak spots as much as those that are on the up, are we in a position where we're joined up enough? And I'm going back to that notion of, of economic policy. Tyler, I think we're joined up enough in terms of big picture macro policy. So in other words, monetary policy, I mean, everyone takes their own responsibilities, but the coordination and the general thrust of it is there. And at varying paces in different countries, central banks will be moving to start to withdraw stimulus. And they won't all do it at once because situations are different, but that's a good thing for the system as a whole. In terms of fiscal policy, clear stance taken that quote, the mistakes of post-global financial crisis wouldn't be made in terms of withdrawing fiscal stimulus too early. That general stance is in place in, in countries as to the extent to, they can afford to do that. And so again, there's a coordination there. Where we've not succeeded as well is on vaccines. There's not really a meaningful global vaccination effort. There are the start of that with COVAX and other efforts through the G20, but we'll see that really has to be ramped up. We also have to make progress or policymakers have to make progress in terms of debt in developing economies that they've had to take on during this period of time. Many of them are unsustainable, so they need to be restructured and also to provide meaningful, and I underscore meaningful, finance for the transition, the climate transition, the, the elements that are really going to support sustained growth. An important step is being taken with the SDR allocation. I know it sounds like obscure plumbing, but it's really important as part of the IMF resources and increase in IMF resources, much of which can go to uh, the emerging and developing world. I suspect we're going to need to do more. And part of that is using the balance sheets of international institutions like the World Banks even more effectively going forward so that we can crowd in private investment in emerging and developing worlds so that we have a global economy that's not moving at two speeds, that's not diverging, but is starting to fire on all cylinders and move together. To summarize, in the simpler end of the spectrum, where should monetary policy be domestically, where should fiscal policy be domestically? I think policymakers have done a very good job and collectively it's having a huge impact. But on the cross-border aspect, there's a lot more work to be done. And part of the legacy of this crisis is that we really need to do this work or else we're, we, we will end up five years down the road with uh, you know, quite stark discrepancies between different parts of the globe after a very long period where by and large we were converging. Let's look at the marshalling role that you face right now, and, and this is going to your your UN assignment, and of course, looking at your legacy. So, of course, you're talking about policy on one side and, and economic policy, and then, of course, what you're trying to wrangle from a sustainability point of view. 
are there some basic, let's say, measures and, and messages? Is there a three or five point plan as to how you start to bring this together? Because, you know, I guess on maybe, you know, one side of the planet, you have a coalition of the willing. And then, of course, you've got a lot of other people who are pursuing their own agenda. So it's a huge task mark. So how are you confronting it? It's a big task, but there's a lot of momentum. And it's one of the situations you see where because there's such a focus now on uh, sustainability across the private sector, including the, so it's not just the public sector, that I think we have a real chance of making a breakthrough for Glasgow. And so just to be clear, what we're trying to do for the private sector finance to help bridge this gap, not just within a country, but across countries, is to get to a position where every financial decision takes climate change into account, just like they take interest rates into account or the creditworthiness of a, of a company into account. Climate change is one of the key determinants of value. So you need the right information, and there's lots of worthy things we're doing to make sure that there's mandatory climate disclosure by companies and that that can be used and compared. You need to build some new markets, like markets for offsets of carbon, uh, markets for the type of what's called blended finance that I was just talking about. So using public money, like at the World Bank, to leverage private money into, into countries. And what you also need is commitment. You need commitment from our largest financial institutions. And one of the things that has come together in recent weeks is something called GFANS. I want you to remember that, Tyler, please, which is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, brought it together for President Biden's summit last month or in April. And it's the bottom line. It's some of our largest financial institutions around the world. Commitments to net zero, not just in 2050, way stations in 2025 and 2030, specific strategies by sector for each of them that they'll be releasing. But the bottom line is it's $70 trillion of assets that these very large financial institutions control. So, you know, that doesn't just sound like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And that creates the prospect of the core of the system doing exactly what we're looking for, managing towards net zero. And we need to bring that through various vehicles to bear globally so that we're really making progress. And does that make every leader uh, in, in every capital pay attention? And I'm focusing on on one capital, which, which would be Beijing, because we can talk about human rights, we can talk about all kinds of different things. And it seems that Beijing pursues its own policy. And yet at the same time, of course, we have also in China, I mean, a number of leaders, you know, in a sustainability space. But when it comes to joining things up, Mark, uh, yeah, do, do you have the attention of Xi Jinping uh, when it comes to these ambitions as well? Uh, I think we do. And uh, I mean, first, we won't get there without China. We won't get there without India, Brazil, others. We know everybody's got to participate. But let's focus, as you as you rightly do, on China. Um, the first is that the Chinese have been leaders, uh, not just in technologies and some of their companies, but also you know, they're the first major emerging economy to commit to net zero. Uh, President Xi did that last fall uh, with the 2060 objective. Uh, they have been leaders in my world, in the finance world, in some of the biggest innovations in climate finance have actually come from China. Um, and uh, of the authorities, uh, the People's Bank of China has always been a leader on that. And so we've been working closely with them. And central to their development, China's next phase of development, 
is developing their local financial markets. And the real push is to make sure that those markets are developing in a green or sustainable way so that there's specific products. Uh, you, have, you have the plumbing in place so that uh, in China, as in the rest of the world, climate change is taken into account in all these decisions. So they are central and, and they are making an impact. Um, that said, much more needs to be done. I mean, the one thing about climate I will say is that it is such a big issue. It is, we've left it very late. So while we have tremendous progress, we need to do even more. Mark, on that point, how much of a challenge is it? Because on one side, if you think about your Brookfield assignment, you've got your UN assignment, is also just cutting through almost that, that point of, of entry in any speech, any forward that you see in any annual report, that of course people talk about sustainability. And there's, there is that, almost that point of disconnect where people are like, okay, I know this, I understand it now. But it becomes almost, it, of course, it, it is the sole driving narrative. But then there's, there's points of nuance as well. So I'm wondering if we get to an, another point of, and another inflection point maybe in all of this, because I think everyone feels not not beaten down, but there is a little bit of fatigue. It's like everyone, yes, I understand it. I know what the sustainability goals are, but what are you really doing as a bank? What are you really doing as a company, uh, which is still core in, in the petrol business or, or whatever it may be? You know, how much of a challenge has that become now? It's a great question and it is a central challenge. And so part of it is, providing the information about what is a bank or a pension fund, what are they doing for the transition? So in other words, it's one thing to say, I have 10% of my assets in quote, green securities. What about the other 90%? Well, actually some of that other 90% are ideally most, if not all of that 90% is backing companies that themselves are decarbonizing. Okay. That's what we want. And we want financial institutions sometimes to go and lend to or invest in companies that have very high emissions because that money, the money they're investing in that company is being used to reduce those emissions. And what we don't want is to have those high emission companies orphaned and just remain emitting and, and causing the problem. So we need to get the capital to where the emissions are and get those emissions down and do so transparently. So a lot of what we're doing is first is getting the financial institutions to commit to net zero and to backing the transition. And then secondly, have, making sure they have the information and can explain to you and I and those listening whether or not they are, what they are doing for the transition. So there are specific pathways for various industries, whether it's the auto industry or the oil and gas industry, or I should say the energy industry as a whole, for that specific pathways that are consistent with us getting to net zero. And we, as a financial institution, can show whether or not our investments are consistent with those pathways. And if they're missing, they're missing by how much. And let me bring that into a, a summary number, because you can. there's ways of calculating what your portfolio is doing to the planet in terms of degree warming. And if you owned all the public securities in the world right now, you'd be warming the planet at three and around three, three and a quarter degrees centigrade. Now, of course, Paris objective is one and a half degrees. So the question that's being asked of financial institutions increasingly will be asked is, are you investing or lending or both to companies that are shifting from that three degree to that one and a half degree world? And if so, at what speed? And that's the level of granularity we're getting to, Tyler. So we're moving from some nice words and some nice 
photographs in the annual report, as you suggest at the start, you know, sustainability, some trees, et cetera, and, and sort of niche projects to what the whole portfolio is doing, what the whole financial institution is doing, and what is its net impact on the planet. Do you think that consumers perhaps almost need a new level of education? Because on one side, yeah, there is this fatigue and, and people feel a little bit beaten down, but also at the same time, you know, people are also not armed with all of the information, as you're saying. So a lot of companies get beat up. And of course, you know, this leads to protests out front. And of course, and many companies, of course, and end up being the poster child of, of, of these attacks, etc. So what are we missing in that dialogue? We're not going to we're not going to solve everything overnight. Many companies are doing the best they can. Of course, there are many others who are maybe coasting. But we seem there's, there's a very funny relationship between the CEO and then probably the end consumer right now. Yeah, I think that's right. It's very confusing. And, and you, know, you have to be realistic about how much time people can devote to the issue and, and how can we distill the information for people so that they can judge who's part of the solution and who's still part of the problem. But there are various ways that, it, that are emerging. So let me give you an example. If you're a financial institution and you're serious about net zero, you will be in GFANS. You'll be in this Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. And I note a number of your advertisers in Monocle are members of that, um, founding members of it, including Allianz and others, uh, because they have made a clear commitment to net zero. They provide the information, they back the companies that are part of the solution, and they're moving away from those who are part of the problem. As you say, you can't do it overnight, but you change your portfolio. So in the financial world, we're providing a gold standard for companies that are moving in that direction. There are also similar initiatives across all the other industry groups. There's something called the Race to Zero, which is part of the UN process. If, if you're in the auto industry and you're in the race to zero, you are doing more than your peers and you're doing it in a way that's transparent. So there, there are these trademarks, if you will, that, that are being created, these clubs that are being created that separate uh, those who are really making comprehensive efforts than others who are maybe doing a number of good things but aren't doing enough uh, to address the issue. Now, for, for, uh, for most people, knowing whether or not somebody's in or out is about as much as they want to know. For those who really study this and focus on it, in some cases obsess over it, for the members who are in these consortia, Race to Zero, GFED, as two examples, well, they will be looking at the specific annual performance of the company. They'll look at their specific plans. They'll look at their trajectories for reducing their emissions, not just of their own company, but the companies they're financing, and they'll make judgments. And believe me, there is tremendous amount of scrutiny that is there. And then for the whole, again, one thinks about, again, in the financial world of how do we summarize this information in a way that's digestible for people in other words, do I have a three-degree pension or a one-and-a-half-degree pension? And even down to, and uh, you know, these products, I think, will be increasingly commonplace, my own purchases, what's the carbon footprint of my purchases, and that being supplied to us in a, in a reliable way. Mark, we're not in the business of, of shaming, and of course, we, we tend to be uh, as positive as we can at Monocle. If you, again, go back to spinning the globe, do you, do you look to any countries right now that are that are really admirable, that are standing, in, maybe not head and shoulders, but certainly a, a few centimeters above other nations, because I think people listen to a program like this and say, okay, who's getting it right? Can I look at a particular ministry? Can I look at a leader? Can I look at a region, which is potentially setting the tone globally? Anything stand out in your mind? I think the UK actually is bringing together a series of policies and frameworks 
that is showing many of the ways that this needs to be addressed. And let me explain that. So one of the basic things in the UK is there's a climate change commission that looks at whether or not the government's policies are going to be consistent with achieving the goals so that you and I and others can digest whether enough is being done. So the UK has a 68% carbon reduction target by 2030. And the Climate Change Commission will come out and say, well, under current policies, you will only achieve X and there'll be a gap between the two. And the government is then on the hook to come back with other policies that could fill the gap. So that's one element of the framework in the UK that is, I I think, is very effective. The second thing where I'm going to praise the UK is actually these changes to the way the financial system works to take climate change into account for all the decisions. The UK is increasingly at the forefront of this. So they're legislating climate disclosure, for example, work to set up this carbon offset market as another example. The Bank of England, my old colleagues at the Bank of England, are stress testing all the banks on this. The Bank of England is changing its balance sheet and the way it works on its balance sheet to take climate into account and on and on and on. So it's a more comprehensive approach You have policy at the top. People can understand what's left to be done. The financial sector is getting behind it. And there's also some very tangible examples of progress to keep it in the positive. So the scale of the offshore wind industry and the objectives there, and even things as, I shouldn't say even, but things as important and tangible as no new internal combustion engines vehicles sold after 2030. Well, that's very real, tangible, and and drives change immediately. So I would say the UK is uh, one of the large countries that does stand out in terms of its policy frameworks. There's more that needs to be done, don't get me wrong, and but there is momentum. And if I can make one other point, which in terms of the interaction between the way the financial market thinks and what governments do and what people want, is the more credible and predictable a change is, So the more it feels like, okay, we're rolling up our sleeves and we collectively are going to deal with this issue and the price on carbon is going to go up. There'll be more regulation against high emission companies and there'll be much bigger rewards for those who come up with the innovations and the solutions uh, to solve the issue. Uh, The more the market pulls forward the adjustment, the more money will go to the solutions the happier people will be because they will make money in in this process. And that's what we want because after all, they're giving society, they're giving us all what we value. Let's speak about the broader neighborhood uh, from your perch in in Ottawa. Uh, If you look down to Washington, uh, things improving, that all-important relationship between Canada and the U.S., how's it feeling now? It feels very good. The relationship, even in difficult times, is exists on multiple levels, so it, uh, it had some strength to it, but it's definitely firing on virtually all cylinders. There's always, you know, some issues. There are some issues in terms of vaccines and in terms of pipelines and others, but uh, the relationship is very, very strong. It's very deep. Uh, and very aligned. And I think one of the most, I mean, there's many uh, welcome things with the Biden administration, but one of the core is just the level of re-engagement with all of the allies, very much including Canada. Mark, just last question. You might have heard that there's an ambassadorship which is open at the Canadian embassy in Bern. Would that type of gig be uh, interesting uh, for you or or maybe uh, maybe something uh, bigger and more grand? Because, you know, Brookfield, nice, and obviously this work for the UN, super important. But are there other more interesting seats or offices out there? Well, the first thing that comes to mind from Bern is that you can swim in the uh, in the river there. A nice summer day. It probably is a nice summer day there. It's a nice little post, and I'm, I'm sure we will send 
our best person there, given the importance of the Swiss relationship. Uh, in, in terms of other things to do, I'll continue to stay active, stay engaged. We'll see what comes up. I'm very fortunate to have this role with the UN right now at a critical time, and um, I'm going to make the most of that and try and ensure that you know people can rely on the financial system to be part of the solution. And then after that, uh, I'll come to you for advice. My thanks to Mark Carney for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. We'll be taking a short recess as the rest of the summer unfolds, but we'll be back in September with a whole new host of Chiefs. So join us then. This episode of The Chiefs was produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu with the assistance of Desiree Bandley. I'm Tyler Brule. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good summer. <laughs>